Hello, you're listening to Community Matters for Thursday, March 9th. I'm Julia Cecil Hanley. Coming up on today's program, we'll get more details from Jamestown Mayor Eddie Sunquist on issues that have arisen over whether Jamestown Local Development Corporation board members violated bylaws. We'll also discuss department head staffing concerns, park projects, and more. That's all coming up on today's program in a moment. WRFA has carried several stories about the Jamestown Local Development Corporation Board and whether board members are in violation of its bylaws in the recent weeks. We had the opportunity to get additional comments from Jamestown Mayor Eddie Sunquist on the issue, as well as discuss a variety of other stories. We welcome Jamestown Mayor Eddie Sunquist to the WRFA studios today. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Julia. We have a, a lot to talk about, but I want to start with, um, we've had a couple stories in the last week about the Jamestown Local Development Corporation. And regarding conflict of interest issues and possible violations of JLDC's bylaws, as well as state general municipal law. So your office had put out a statement last week that essentially said that should any inconsistencies be found that your administration would work to rectify those. So do you, do you have any updates since you put out that statement? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been working actually with the state compliance office and uh, they've been phenomenal to work with. They're well aware of the situation. Uh, and they uh, talked to us about uh, what things need to happen. Number one, they gave us some additional dates uh, for fiduciary training, uh, which we found out is is actually required for public authorities. Uh, and you know, unfortunately, with COVID, uh, a lot of that went to the wayside for for quite a period of time. Uh, but we want to make sure that we're compliant and we're doing the things that we need to do. Uh, so we're working with the compliance office. Uh, you know, some of the interesting things about this when we were talking about the awards is that it's really governed by the U.S. Treasury Department. And that's been a real struggle for us because they've actually uh, gotten rid of their staff that focuses on compliance uh, in the Treasury Department. Uh, so it's been a challenge for us to try to figure out, you know, what's the proper way uh, to, to do things when it comes to this federal funding. Uh, so we're working through that process uh, and we're really, we're really gonna be talking to the JLDC board uh, about uh, what we have found out uh, through this process of working with the state and working with some of our federal partners uh, because we really wanna have that public discussion of what happened and where do we go from here. Uh, it's important because we have a fairly new board on JLDC and we wanna make sure that we're doing things properly. And um, when we released the statement to you all, we said we would make sure that we would work to take action once we figured out what's required of us, right? And so we found out we do need uh, training, fiduciary training, uh, and uh, we also need to have a, a public discussion on what happened with these awards and what do we do going forward. Uh, so we're, we're gonna be having that shortly, um, but we do thank uh, you and uh, Jason Sample and the media for, uh, for pointing that out and for holding us accountable. You know, when I started uh, this, this process as mayor four years ago, I wanted to make sure that we were transparent. We've had all these discussions kind of openly in the public, uh, but you know, when some things go wrong, we need to make sure that we also continue to have that discussion and figure out how we can work to make it right. And that's where we're at now. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the training, uh, I mean, we're aware of that, and now you have confirmed that uh, you do need to get this training. So um, do you feel that there's that the conflict of interest situation could have been avoided had you or all the other board members received training as required? Well, you know, certainly I'm not aware of what the specific training is, uh, but we're we're certainly going to go through that process and work with the state. In fact, their their compliance office was really great to work with. Uh, they gave us various dates where they'll conduct training for us to make sure all of our board members are fully trained, understand conflicts of interest, understand what's required of them. Uh, you know, not every uh, public authority has the same bylaws, uh, and so it's important that we do that. And I and I certainly agree. Uh, having that training by the state uh, will will help a lot of these folks that are new, right? That are volunteering, that are giving their time for free to help, uh, you know, make our community better. And so we're we're excited to be able to work with them. And more importantly, we want to just make sure that we write the ship, and that we're we're doing what we need to as as good public stewards of uh, money. When you were talking with the compliance board, did they bring up any issues about any other boards that are out of compliance with training, like whether it's the Jamestown Urban Renewal Agency or the Zoning uh, Approval Board? They mentioned that uh, uh, various public authority boards do need to do have training. 
however, they also mentioned that uh, the JLDC board is actually in compliance with all, with all of its financial reporting as well. So there's, there's two components we found out from the compliance office. Number one, ensuring that there's annual reporting that is done to the state. Um, we're fully compliant with that. In fact, we've, we've never been not compliant with it. Uh, and then the second part is the, the training. Uh, and typically, the, the state office had mentioned that they don't really look at the, uh, the training requirements unless we're non-compliant with other items. Uh, but they certainly encouraged us to make sure that we get the training that we need to do, and they offered us uh, to help with that process. Okay. <clears throat> Moving on to our uh, next topic, uh, the city of Jamestown is currently without a comptroller with um, acting comptroller, who was also the uh, deputy comptroller, Katie Maycock, stepping down on March 3rd. Do you have someone who will be serving temporarily in that position? Or do you, I mean, where are you with hiring a new comptroller? Yeah, we're, we're very sad to see Katie leave. Uh, she uh, received a, uh, an offer to work for another company that provided her uh, some, some different flexibility than the city is able to offer. And unfortunately, with city work, uh, we just can't compete with work from home opportunities, uh, as well as much larger salary salary uh, opportunities that have been coming along. Uh, so we were very, uh, I was very happy to to see that she is uh, she's moving on to a different place that um, is going to be able to su support her and her family, uh, and uh, we're continuing to try to figure out what we do going forward. Um, right now, we have uh, some internal staff that's helping out uh, moving things uh, forward, ensuring that we continue to get the checks uh, out. Uh, we've got some oversight uh, as well coming from our treasurer's office, uh, from our clerk slash treasurer, Jennifer Williams, who's helping manage employees. Uh, and we're, we're finalizing our comptroller search. In fact, uh, we've got a couple candidates that we just completed interviews on. Um, we've had some further conversations, and we're hoping actually uh, to have someone in place by April 1st. So there's a bit of period of time. In the meantime, we've got some of our former comptrollers coming back in to assist us uh, in just uh, year-end act, uh, year activities and closing out, uh, as well as starting our audit. Uh, so we're, uh, we're really sad to, to see Katie leave. Uh, she was uh, an incredible asset uh, for, for the city and has done a, an absolute phenomenal job. Uh, and we certainly wish her well. Uh, in fact, I uh, you know, congratulate her on a new position, and and, and uh, it was it was great to see. Uh, but we're also looking at new uh, new folks uh, to join the office and to to help us moving forward. Uh, and we're, like I said, we're hoping to have that squared away by April first. Mm -hmm. Are you planning to also hire a new deputy comptroller? Because that's what Katie's position had been before she got moved into the interim. Yes, the deputy comptroller position, which is actually funded by rescue plan funds is uh, accessible until uh, 2026. Uh, so we are we do have both positions currently open. Uh, we're focused on the comptroller role right now because we do want to let whoever the comptroller could be uh, have some say in the deputy comptroller role. Um, although we've been interviewing a lot of folks and some of them actually probably would be really great for the deputy comptroller role as well. Uh, so we're kind of working through that process. We want to make sure we secure the comptroller first and then work on the deputy comptroller role. That makes sense. Uh March, kind of a, a big month uh, for, for Jeff Lehman. If, if anybody followed last night's uh, city council meeting, there's a lot of parks, projects that are being proposed. But this is Jeff Lehman's last month in his role as um, director of public works and acting parks director. I think March 31st, I think is what you said was his last day. So where I, this has been a long journey. So where are we now with finding a replacement for him? It certainly has been a long journey. And every day we get closer to, uh, to uh, Jeff's retirement, I get a little nervous. Uh, but certainly, uh, Jeff uh, Lehman has been a, a, an incredible force within our public works department for many, many years here at the city of Jamestown. And it, it's truly been an honor to have him. And we've seen a lot of incredible improvements. Uh, and in fact, I, I, feel, I feel quite bad for him in his last couple of years. He's, he's probably done more projects than ever before uh, with the increase of uh, state and federal funding that we've received. Uh, but he's uh, done it with uh, such uh, incredible work ethic as well as, as grace and uh, just getting things done in the city has been a really important component of his uh, tenure here. We're certainly sad to leave him and we're working on uh, trying to do some internal promotions uh, to cover the period of time as we're still looking for a, uh, a public works director. Uh, I will say we've got uh, one individual uh, that has shown a lot of promise that will be coming into the city later this month uh, for a more formal interview. We've had some informal ones uh, with, uh, with this individual. Uh, and so we're hoping that uh, this could be it. <laughs> Uh, but obviously, with any type of employment, you, you know you work through that process. You wait to see what happens, 
uh, but we're we're hopeful uh, that within the next uh, month or two that we'll have someone in place for Jeff's role. Um, regardless, uh, we'll probably have an uh, internal uh, spot uh, being held so that we can just continue the day-to-day -day operations mm -hmm. while we're waiting. Right, because, yeah, one of the, the tricks about the, the department head position is that the person not only has to live in Jamestown, but they also have to have that engineering degree. Is it public engineering? I think it is PE degree for yeah, this professional position. professional engineer, yep. Professional engineer, mm -hmm. thank you. And uh, um, I think part of the issue has been finding someone who has that degree and then also lives in the city. So when you're saying internally, you, you, I know there are about two, at least two people who have that degree in DPW right now. So as a goal, like maybe to say, okay, you're just going to be like an interim until yes. that, that you can find someone who meets all the all the you know has a degree and also is willing to live in Jamestown yeah that that is kind of the goal right now uh, and it's something that is that's typical with a lot of city governments is you'll have an internal candidate uh, for a, a period of time either become interim or acting and uh, maintain that position while we uh, continue the search so we're, we're gonna we're most likely going to work through that uh, through that process as we get towards the uh, to the end of the month uh, here. Uh, and we're going to continue the search process as well. You know, one of the things that we have found is a lot of folks that are coming with this uh, professional engineering degree, uh, they're getting hired by uh, the private private sector. Uh, it's sometimes kind of twice the rate we pay for an experienced uh, engineer. Uh, and uh, it is very difficult sometimes for us to compete in that role. We've also found that uh, in our examination of a lot of public works titles, uh, there are many communities that have actually dropped the uh, the PE requirement, right? And as long as they're public, as long as there's some some person, some engineer that has the uh, requirements to sign off in the department, uh, you don't necessarily need to have uh, the department head have that uh, re licensing or requirement. Mm -hmm. So we're looking into that. Uh, there might be a request that we might we make of city council, depending on who we find uh, in the end and whether we're we're going to drop that requirement or not. Uh, but we're uh, we're working through that process now. Mm -hmm. And I think an example locally would be Chautauqua County Department of Public Facilities does not have that requirement, but they they obviously they have a more than a handful of engineers that work for them. They do yes, and and as you pointed out, there are several uh, several engineers that work in the city already uh, that already have that, that licensure. So, uh, you know, if we're able to find someone that has a really solid public works background, has done it before, understands the mechanics of it, uh, that would be, uh, we'll, we may be approaching city council about removing that requirement. Mm -hmm. So I, I teased this uh, when we were talking about Jeff, but there were uh, a large number of parks projects that were presented to city council last night uh you know the requesting use of american rescue plan funds i think i think if i remember the total right was like seven hundred twenty-one thousand dollars worth of projects with the top item being two proposed splash pads for jackson taylor park and allen park uh so um I'm just curious, you know, we, we there was a pretty long presentation, and, and I'm not, you know, poking at, at anybody because you know there was a lot of details that had to be discussed. And uh, I wonder, you know, when it when it comes to the um, splash pads, this sounds like a project should it get approval could even be completed as soon as the end of the summer. July 2023 is uh, what we'd received from our contractor. Uh, so you, you pointed out a great thing. Number one, what we'd heard using the rescue plan funds in our listening sessions across the city uh, were that we wanted park improvements. And certain parks had been neglected for quite a long uh, period of time, uh, mostly because of funding or for various reasons. Uh, and this is a, an opportunity to improve those public spaces. You know, as you know, this is our park system is it's really the jewel of Jamestown uh, with over 500 acres of parkland is really something for everyone to do. And we've heard a lot about uh, you know fixing basketball courts and creating pickleball courts, uh, volleyball uh, uh, courts, right? Improving parks that have gone neglected for a period of time, such as Willard Park, right? Uh, and so those are all things that we were, have been discussing for uh, many, many months and trying to anticipate uh, a lot of the questions that might come up. But one of the things that you had mentioned right off the top of the bat was splash pads. You know, I consistently hear from from families, what is there to do for kids, right? And it is certainly something that weighs on me as mayor and weighs on a lot of our staff. 
and splash pads uh, really were one thing that we wanted to try to bring to the Jamestown community. We've been talking about it. We've been talking about it, I think, since 2019. Uh, so it's certainly been some discussion, uh, but we're, we're finally ready to move forward with it. When we were originally talking about this idea, we were looking at one large splash pad, but in talking to other communities such as Dunkirk and other places, we found that many of those communities would have rather had uh, two smaller ones in various parts of their, uh, their municipality. So in talking to our team, we said, let's take a look at where the places that we uh, could potentially place these. Let's do a bit smaller design uh, and utilize the funds more effectively. And so with that, we came up with uh, two potential sites, one at Jackson Taylor Park and one at Allen Park, uh, both for uh, activated splash pads. Mm-hmm. With the one at Jackson Taylor Park, I mean, one of the things that's always been an issue down there is soil quality. And the proposed location is the, I say the current, I should say the old skate park uh, pad that's there. And Dan Stone talked a little bit about this. Um, what are some of the issues that were existing with the skate park there that brought it into consideration for this project? Well, we were actually looking at several different sites at Jackson Taylor Park, but uh, as, as you noted, we have a sinking problem with anything that we build on Jackson Taylor uh, Park. So we were looking at uh, not only soil quality, but we're looking at ability to create kind of a grounding surface. Uh, we actually looked at the potential of uh, you know taking over some uh, street space and potentially demolishing a home and using a portion near the pavilion. Uh, but we found that that was kind of too far from the bathrooms and, and was going to be um, more work than we were probably able to handle in-house. Uh, so we started looking at other locations, and one of the uh, potential locations is the former skateboard uh, park, uh, the former skate park. You know, unfortunately, a lot of that equipment uh, has been uh, repaired uh, in-house over the years, and the majority of it has now become an, an actual hazard since we've opened up the new skate park. Uh, and so we had to remove most of it uh, during this winter already. Uh, so it's now left more of an open space. And we're, we're left with the idea of either trying to build up that park, which we now have a new skate park, or utilize that space for some other type of park improvement. Uh, and in looking at the soil quality, the location, and how this is um, held up, that location already, we found that to be the best spot uh, for Jackson Taylor Park. And it's close to the bathrooms, close to parking, and, and things that would be needed for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, was there any concern that has been heard from the skate community about the loss? Because that was one of the things that was always stated when the new skate park over um, off Fairmount Avenue was going to be put in that, oh, we'll still keep the Washington Street. Had you heard from them any concerns about losing that space or are they just thrilled with, with the new space they have? We haven't heard any uh, direct feedback about that yet, but unfortunately it's also been the winter. So that's a little bit tough. Uh, you know, the problem that we faced is uh, we, as I'd mentioned, we had a lot of equipment that started to diminish and has been repaired in house for quite a long period of time. So it's actually become a safety hazard uh, for that. Uh, but we're, we're hoping that with the uh, world-class new skate park that we just created uh, and putting in a splash pad, which really is an additional feature for kids, uh, is going to really offset uh, some of the movement of that uh, smaller skate park area. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, uh, and happy to also report, that we've been in active discussions of looking at um, Jackson Taylor Park and others uh, for a pump track, uh, which has been in the works for a period of time. Uh, so even though we may be removing the skateboard uh, track, there's uh, some much bigger uh, and more incredible things on the way. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I think that was something I, that, if I recall right, and I, I have to put on the other hat from years past before I came to WRFA, that was something that was being looked at under the Brownfield program there. Is that something that the pump track's looking, being still considered under that program, or is it I'm not separate? sure if it's being considered under the Brownfield program or which specific program it's mm-hmm. under, but... Certainly it's been a request from our, our biking community as well as uh, a lot of other parts of our community uh, to have that. And we've been heavily uh, looking at that. It's been a discussion that we were going to do in conjunction with our skate park. Uh, so we're moving that forward and it's going to be a unique opportunity. So we're gonna see a lot more park improvements to come. Mm-hmm. For, yeah, if, if, if you don't know what a bike pump track is, I recommend Definitely go and look up a video of it because these are pretty cool tracks. They're like basically it's a series of hills, isn't it? And that the whole idea is that you can kind of make it around um, like a course of a sense. It's like it's a round round course with hills. That's correct. Yes. (laughs) 
So, okay. And uh, one thing, there were some questions that did come up from uh, council uh, about the splash pad. And one of those being concerns about um, maintenance of it. And, you know, is there um, budgeted maintenance for this once the, the once the parks are built? And, and Dan still kind of said, well, we've worked without a budget before. But, um, you know, how, how, how does your administration plan to handle any added uh, maintenance costs once the parks are open? Yeah, so we would typically budget for uh, general maintenance costs. You know, the nice thing about these splash pads is most of the maintenance is uh, either falls kind of under warranty for a period of time or uh, just requires simple things like uh, paint and fixing up of, of kind of concrete pads and, and those types of things. Uh, it's similar to what we do in our parks, right? In our parks, we need new wood chips. Sometimes we need new parks equipment. Uh, we typically try to budget for those uh, each year. Um, we're in the process of trying to figure out the exact maintenance, and we've had uh, some conversations with other communities that have done this. And most of their, what we've heard so far, most of their maintenance budgets are very low uh, when, it, when it pertains to splash pads. Uh, and it would really just be if there's a break fix that needs to happen with the equipment itself, uh, which are usually under a period of warranty, uh, or whether that's new paint or uh, new uh, pieces that may come out of the ground for the splash pad. Uh, but we're certainly looking into trying to figure out what the exact amount of maintenance uh, may be, or we should look at budgeting for those two splash pads. Mm -hmm. I noticed that um, it looks like you're dealing with Parkitects, who is also the same company that um, was hired for building the big playground at Jackson Taylor Park, the playground at Roseland. And I think they also, there's some pieces on the one side of Allen Park that they helped put in. So they do have a long history with the city. They do. And uh, so, and, and I remember it seems to be a good relation. So I imagine that that's part of why they were chosen. Yeah, Parkitects uh, has been an incredible asset to the city and has helped us design uh, many different parks and park features uh, across our area. Uh, they're uh, you know fairly local. I think they're coming out of Western New York, uh, and so they're they're very responsive. They're always willing to come uh, down to Jamestown and have those conversations with us about uh, what we're looking for and how to best make that happen. Uh, so we're we're applying the same thing to our splash pads. Uh, they they know what needs to happen for kids, uh, and that's what's really important to us. And so we're very excited to continue to partner with them uh, as we move forward with additional parks improvements. Mm -hmm. When it comes to water and um, the splash pads, there, there was a, a question brought up about um, water safety in terms of the water itself being safe. Um, and it's the, the terms of how this pl splash pad is going to be set up, I, I think you said it's not circulating water system. So um, how, how does this all work? Well, you know, there was a big question that came up when we started looking at splash pads, which is, what are the requirements of splash pads here in New York? Uh, and one of the things that a lot of communities have installed, uh, and you don't have to install it, but this was kind of the initial wave of folks that did splash pads, was a circulated water system. So what happens is you use a very set amount of water uh, and it continues to circulate uh, throughout the splash pad, comes back into the system, uh, gets cleaned, and goes through that process. Uh, we're actually not proposing that at all. Uh, we actually would like to use a fresh water system, which means the water comes directly as it would from your tap uh, into the system and then just runs off into kind of our sewer or storm drains uh, within, the, within the system. So uh, it's a little bit different because we don't have the same requirements as a circulated system. With a circulated system, New York treats it as if it were a community pool. So you have to have it regularly tested. You have to have people on staff. Uh, to manage it. With a fresh water system, you're just getting the water direct from uh, our water source, which would be the BPU. Uh, and you're just you're really just managing the water flow rates, right, and how things come through. They're not the same requirements uh, for testing as uh, a circulated water system. Uh, so we actually looked at the difference in cost differential and what it would be to run the system, whether it was circulated uh, or just fresh water. And we actually found it would be cheaper for us to do fresh water given the water rates uh, that we that we pay as a city. And also we wouldn't have to have on staff uh, full-time someone to monitor uh, our water quality in our, in our two splash pads. Uh, but we would have parks uh, individuals that are trained uh, to manage the splash pads. I want to be clear about that. Uh, that's part of uh, the overall uh, building package that we have proposed to city council. It includes a section on training our staff to manage those splash pads. And there are people who are already in those two parks, uh, as it is, who, you know, do the management. So it's not like 
these pads are being located in areas where there's not staffing. So, um, and also one of the things that was kind of interesting, if anybody's taking their kid up to the Dunkirk um, splash pad, I, I saw it in operation once and it's, and I understand that the proposed splash pads here would operate the same way is that the water's not on continuously. Correct. It takes a, a child or an adult, I suppose, going and pushing a button to turn the water on. Yes, they're, they're uh, button activated. So instead of just running uh, on a constant cycle, uh, a child would have to run to the middle, press the button, and then it would run for a period of time and then shut off. And so it, it's a way to not only conserve water, but it's also so that we're not running it on a 24-7 cycle. Uh, also brought up last night is that we would shut these off at night. So you can't be there at uh, you know 11 o'clock at night pressing the button and hoping that the water is going to come up, right? Uh, but certainly we, uh, we want to limit some of that access as well. Mm-hmm. Moving on to, I mean, this was just one pro. Well, I should say two projects that were on this big list, and uh, I want to start with uh, Willard Street because this is a, a park that anybody who's gone by and who's lived in the neighborhood knows that. I don't think the pieces have been changed in there, other than being removed, since probably be- maybe my early youth or probably before me, and, and I'm, I'm old. So, <laughs> which is say so. And I'm in my late forties, so. Um, this is a park that you're looking at making improvements to, and council is, you know, seems ready to, to vote yes on this and go forward. Yeah, we, we've identified this as a target park for us for improvements. And in fact, uh, as I've walked through that neighborhood and knocked on doors, even uh, just a couple of years back, that's one of the, the number one complaints we had was the park itself. Uh, it's equipment that has been updated. It was an old school that was demolished and buried into itself. Uh, and so we, we have a lot of challenges with that park. Uh, so we did have our um, kind of engineers come by and, and develop a new uh, parkscape for it. Not only a, a new uh, park equipment, but we're also looking at volleyball courts and the potential for uh, fruit trees in uh, a partnership with the Chautauqua County uh, Water and Soil Conservation. Um, we've also had a lot of discussions with the um, the public market about this about the spot as a location uh, to uh, provide uh, services uh, for various uh, fruits and vegetables, uh, and we've had a wonderful conversation with uh, Linnea Carlson, uh, who has been an advocate for replacing this park. This park has consistently been identified in reports as one of the most underutilized and probably most needed uh, park in the community, given the number of kids uh, and the fact where it sits. So we're just really excited to be able to add a lot of different features uh, to Willard Park uh, and to be able to just revitalize that area. Mm-hmm. I think when you mentioned Lene, I think that that site either was or at some point in the past had been a mobile market site. So, And when I first read about the orchards, I thought, well, that's an interesting, but the orchard idea solves an issue with the park um, from what Dan said. Yeah, there were some there were some issues. Uh, there's there's spaces that we can't actually program anything on because of various slope and uh, things that are underneath it. Uh, so as as mentioned last night, uh, that uh, that does um, activate parts of the park space that we wouldn't be actually be able to put anything on as it is. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's really a great idea, and it's something that's uh, fairly new for the city. We don't normally think about putting fruit trees <laughs> in our parks, because uh, it does provide some challenges, uh, but that's the kind of forward thinking we're, we're open to uh, as we continue to revitalize and revamp some of the park spaces we have. Mm-hmm. So these would be fruit bearing trees as opposed to the fruit trees that are just flower bearing? I believe so, oh, yeah. Okay, because I think this is one of those areas that qualifies as a food desert, so. It does, yes. Yeah, so yeah, that's, that's an interesting prospect there. And do you have any timeline for when that project could potentially go forward? Uh, I don't have a specific timeline yet. Uh, we do know that uh, I think most of the equipment can be ordered fairly fairly quickly. Uh, but we, as we do with almost every park, we try to do a community build. So there's some component of that uh, that's usually built in. Uh, I think the sooner the better for a Willard Park for, for us uh, as we start to look at our summer projects. Mm-hmm. Another uh, park that it hasn't been that long since when I say it hasn't been that long but you know I I start start to think about years Roseland Park had a new playground put in and I think that was in 2010 I think when it got built so we're talking now that that playground is about 13 years but you're looking at making improvements to that park as well and adding new features yeah Roseland Park has also been identified as a much needed park Uh, what we're seeing there is a lot of cracking of uh, uh, blacktop and concrete and other things going on in that in that park area 
the baseball fields have been redone in that uh, in that park in particular. Uh, the playground is still solid. Uh, that was inspected, no major issues. It's fairly new, as you had mentioned. Uh, but we are looking at redeveloping all the other space around that area. Uh, we're talking about adding in pickleball courts, uh, which is, I surprisingly learned is the fastest growing sport in the US currently. Uh, I, learned, I learned so much new information as mayor, sometimes things like that. Uh, but we're looking at pickleball courts in that area, redeveloped walkway space, uh, new uh, parking uh, area for, uh, for folks, including handicap parking and accessibility, and a couple other improvements uh, to Roseland. Mm -hmm. And I know one of the things Dan Stone mentioned was the need for shade over there because it does get really hot. And that it sounds like you're looking at a shade, not a, uh, like a, a regular pavilion like we have see in like Allen or Bergman, but like a shade structure. We are looking at shade structure. It's one of the things that we've been uh, looking at in terms of our, our planning process, uh, which is do we always need to put the pavilions? Our normal process would be to put a, a, a standing pavilion. And the reality is some communities have actually just started to do shade structures, right? Which are a little bit easier. They can be removed in the winter time, put back up. Uh, sometimes they're permanent, sometimes they're not, uh, but they're, it just provides a little bit uh, different type of uh, uh, component to a park. And so that is one of the things we're looking at. Instead of uh, bearing the full cost of a pavilion, which uh, in this construction season could cost a lot, a shade structure actually reduces the cost for us and is a little bit more mobile. Hmm. Interesting. And one thing I forgot to mention uh, when we were talking about the splash pads is that you do have two community engagement meetings that you've planned about the splash pads that are coming up in the next two months. We do. I, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that uh, we've we've done is provide some community engagement of what should those splash pads splash pads look like in your community in your park. So we've set up two days where we want to present to the uh, the neighbors and the residents of those areas what we're thinking. I uh, have uh, the our engineers, architects actually come in, talk about some of those splash pads, what features would be available as part of it, and make sure we're meeting the needs of residents and, and answer concerns, right? Because these are new. People don't often think about uh, you know what those would entail in a neighborhood. And we want to have those conversations and make sure that we tailor those appropriately uh, but also, we just want to announce the, the really great stuff that we're doing uh, in our parks. And this is an opportunity to, to do that. So we've got two sessions that are, are slated, uh, one for March 30th, uh, which is a Thursday at 6 p.m. at the Allen Park, uh, well, former ice rink, uh, but <laughs> now soccer field. Uh, so uh, the Allen Park rink structure. Uh, and then we have another one scheduled for April 11th uh, at Jackson Taylor Park in, their, uh, in the pavilion. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously they correspond with where the splash pads are going to be. We'll have similar presentations, except uh, we'll tailor those to each of those parks. So the Allen Park presentation, we'll talk about the Allen Park uh, splash pad. And the Jackson Taylor one, we'll talk about Jackson Taylor Park splash pad. And the Jackson Taylor meetings, uh, a, a, a double your buck kind of uh, situation because it's not going to be just about the splash pad. You said there's also going to be the action plans going to be discussed as well? Yes. Yeah, so as part of it, we wanted to double it up with a meeting that was already happening in that park, uh, and that's with our Department of Development. Uh, they have to do an annual action plan and how we spend our federal uh, HUD funding. And so we thought, what a great way to combine both and to get that public input. Uh, and so we didn't want to, uh, you know, just provide more and more public meetings and all of a sudden now you're choosing which ones you go to. We wanted to be a little bit more consistent uh, and concise and try to combine some of those things together for public input. Mm -hmm. One thing I noticed is, and it, it had been discussed real early on, I think either late 2021 after you put out the master plan and then maybe in early 2022 as well, was this idea of a dog park at Bergman Park. Is this something that's been basically put on the back burner? Is this kind of like, well, we thought about it and council didn't seem ready to go forward. Is that something that looks like it's still gonna happen? We, you know, we'd love a dog park. In fact, uh, I've been, I, I was approached just the uh, other day over the weekend by, uh, by a resident who said, what's going on with splash pads and dog parks? <laughs> so uh, splash pads, I said, are coming and they did. Uh, and, but dog parks are a little bit more complicated. Uh, at this point, uh, we don't believe we have enough votes on city council to move forward with a dog park. Uh, so we've put that on hold. Uh, but certainly we encourage folks that if you're interested in a dog park to reach out to your elected officials and let them know. 
uh, that, that you're interested so that we could uh, try to work to move forward. Uh, plans are already developed. Uh, we've uh, worked with community groups to try to better understand the needs of a dog park. Uh, and so we're ready to be able to build one. Uh, we just would need the funding, which we could secure, uh, and the support from city council. Should everything go through that was presented last night, there's a couple of projects we didn't talk about, but, you know, in terms of the, I think, the $271,000, that leaves, I think, around $2 million left in American Rescue Plan funds. And one thing that had come up, you had mentioned, I forget, maybe early in January or at the last work session in January about possibly bringing forward um resolution about bonding and there was a in councilwoman marie kruber i remember she brought up she's like oh can we use american rescue plan funds versus going for a bond are this is that something that's still in process I, I noticed it wasn't on the agenda last night didn't know if it was coming forward on the agenda later this month but where where are things standing with that yeah so you you hit the nail on the head with that so there's obviously funding still available there are a few items that are still remaining that we're looking to apply for rescue plan funding from the city council uh, one of those still on the back burner is a potential new ambulance uh, as we work through some of the issues related to that, uh, as well as new financial software uh, for the city, uh, which actually hasn't been updated since the early 2000s, which is always a fun time. Uh, so we're, we're working on those two items uh, that would still leave uh, probably around 1.7 million left in rescue plan funds. Uh, and one of the things that we've had, I've had some discussions with city council about is using that funding uh, to help reduce some of our bond uh, requirements. Uh, we've got a lot of additional projects uh, coming forward that were that just need to happen in the city. Things like large roof repairs, uh, new ambulance, excuse me, new uh, fire trucks, uh, things like that are really important and they're a, a vital component of what we do. And we typically would bond for those things. We have a lot of capacity now as a city. We don't have a lot of outstanding bonds uh, in payments. So it's we're in a really good spot right this moment. Uh, and so we're looking at a potential bond for it. We'll probably bring that uh, forward uh, probably next month uh, for some discussion. Uh, but we do, uh, we'll most likely plan on asking to use the remaining of our rescue plan funds uh, to help reduce uh, the total amount of that bond cost. Mm -hmm. And that, I was thinking about when it came to the bond cost, uh, uh, when it was during, we were in the budget period that Jeff Lehman had a capital project list that was a mile long, per usual. Yeah, and I was thinking still that, does. Yeah, still <laughs> he does. reminded think, me the other day. <laughs> yeah, so I was wondering, but yeah, the roof, I remember the roof being on there. And even he mentioned, I think, continued um, the finishing of Tracy Plaza. So uh, I imagine that that alone, those two projects probably could exhaust anything that is currently left even with American Rescue Plan funds. Yeah, you know, one of the things that is often neglected is our own city hall, right? And we need a new roof, that's very expensive. Uh, we Sometimes we need to replace uh, different things going on with Tracy Plaza, because as you may remember, or your listeners may remember, we had flooding going down in our police and fire department. Uh, and so those are those are things that you know we we continue to see some ramifications of, and we can only let them go for so long. Uh, and uh, there it affects the quality of life of our employees, and it affects our business uh, at, at City Hall. So we do need to try to uh, get those funds to secure and ensure that that building continues to stand. Uh, but we're we're working through that process as well as as you'd mentioned uh, Jeff Lehman's mile-long list of capital projects, trying to figure out which ones would be most uh, most pertinent uh, going forward and probably need the most uh, immediate support. Mm -hmm. uh, even though there's seven inches of snow outside, we've uh, talked a lot about recreation activities, and another proposal came forward last night from uh, Bird Bike Share. Yes, and uh, yeah. looking at and it's something that. The city would have to do an agreement with them, but this is a company that's looking at bringing in electric bike and scooter program to this area. Yeah, we're re I'm really excited to be able to announce some uh, micro mobility initiatives in the city. You know, one of the things that we often go, uh, you know, we underlook is the fact that not everyone has vehicles, right? And um, sometimes we have issues with public transit. And so there is an opportunity here, as we've identified as an administration, to provide additional mobility options. And those are uh, electronic bikes, e-bikes, as well as uh, scooters, e-scooters, electronic scooters. Uh, so we're very excited to announce uh, a potential partnership with a Bird, which provides scooters currently for a couple other municipalities. One of the challenges when we first started talking to Bird was we let them know we have a lot of hills 
And those scooters, although will get you up the hill, may not be the best for individuals around this area. Uh, so we've we've talked to them about uh, being the first e-bike program. They just started e-bikes about a year ago. Uh, so we would be the first municipality in the area to, to get those on top of scooters. Uh, and we're very excited about that. Uh, we're, the program itself, when we were originally looking at it, the city was considering starting its own bike share program, which had a lot of upfront capital costs. Uh, in this scenario, in this partnership, Bird actually provides all of that capital. Uh, they also hire a local operator to manage uh, and take care of those bikes and scooters. Uh, and then the city receives a portion of the revenue uh, on each of those rides. Uh, so we actually uh, make out in this case. We're not expending a lot of money. Uh, and obviously we have a third party that would provide all of those things. Mm -hmm. Are you allowed to say who the third party may be? Or is that something that still you can't announce that till the contract is signed? Uh, well, when you when are you talking about the operator? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so the operator is actually chosen by Bird. Uh, okay. So we don't we don't actually choose an operator, but uh, we uh, we do provide uh, some potential options of just folks that we know in the kind of bike and scooter community uh, that might be interested. Uh, but they they actually hire out the operator itself uh, that that manages those operations. Mm -hmm. Some questions came up about theft of the bikes, you know, what, you know, we have a river that runs through the city, you know, and I've heard of other communities where they say, yeah, they have these scooter programs, the scooters just end up in the, in the drink, so to say. Uh, Sounded like there were some solutions in, in terms of how these bikes and scooters are set up that helps avoid that. Yeah, there's a couple things. Number one, uh, if you don't return your bike or scooter, you could be charged the full cost of the bike or scooter. Uh, but number two, a lot of these bikes also come with GPS and other uh, water features and other uh, issues. There are other uh, items that uh, actually help track down where those things are at. So if they see that a scooter or a bike uh, has ended up in a body of water or some other place, uh, the operator uh, actually works to uh, get that out uh, and also works with uh, the police if need be, if there's some type of theft. Uh, but uh, Bird has been doing this a while, and uh, they have uh, systems in place to assist with this process. And as they'd mentioned uh, last night on our, our Zoom call with them, uh, they try to uh, try to pull the burden off of, uh, of the police department uh, and utilize their operator and their resources in order to deal with any type of theft or loss of those items. One of the things that was kind of interesting was how these bikes, because they're hooked up to GPS, is that they basically stop working if they go outside, whatever the boundary is that is set by the city. Yeah, you're not taking it to Lakewood. <laughs> you're not you're not taking it out of the bounds of the city of Jamestown. Uh, but we're we're certainly excited to see that. In for most folks, that's that kind of satisfies their needs, right? You can get to the grocery store, you can get to school, you can get to work, you can get to wherever you need. Uh, it's certainly something we've had conversations with JCC about and trying to get some of more of their students to downtown and other parts of the city. Uh, but but you're right, there will be areas where they will be what's called geofenced out, then they will not be allowed in. Uh, we also require that you don't ride them on the sidewalk, right? They got to be ridden in the road and, and, and things like that. Uh, and there are the company's application as well as the, the bike or the scooter itself, which gives you a little bit of an alert uh, when you're not doing the right thing, is meant to guide you to, to where you're supposed to place the bike or scooters. And we're going to make those, uh, those places highly visible uh, with racks that you can put those things in. Uh, as well as information on where what you can and can't do, rules of the road, uh, so to say, with the use of those vehicles. Uh, plus, they're not super fast. Uh, I think that they max out, I think, at 15 uh, miles per hour. Uh, so you're not looking at, at least for the scooters, uh, the, and obviously the bikes, you might be able to pedal a little bit faster. Uh, but they, uh, there is a limit on how fast that those things can go. And thinking about how, how fast and uh, the, the insurance or I guess, you know, when it comes to, say, someone who's using them and maybe gets hurt, that's mainly falls to Bird, the company? Yeah, Bird uh, maintains an insurance policy on every rider. That's part of the agreement between the rider and, and Bird. And then Bird indemnifies the city uh, for any type of potential accidents that may occur. Uh, so they make us an insured on their policy and... Uh, they, they basically provide the insurance that would be needed, similar to if you were using a car, right? You would get additional insurance on the use of that car. Mm -hmm. How affordable is is this going to be for folks? I mean, I think, you know, there's obviously a payment that they have, people have to make when they're using uh, uh, an electric bike or scooter. So do you, how is that structure? Is that not set yet? 
No, there was some discussion last night about it. Uh, so there is a, an initial fee to unlock the biker scooter. I think it's a dollar forty-nine. Don't quote me on on that. Uh, and then it was about forty-nine cents a minute uh, for for additional rides, right, for use of that. Uh, however, what's really really unique about Bird is that they're very focused on community pricing. So if individuals that are uh, could be you know closer near the poverty line maybe have an EBT card. Uh, maybe are, have some type of benefits. Um, they also provide it if you're a senior citizen uh, or a healthcare worker uh, or other things, they'll actually provide you with half off the total ridership cost. So they're very focused on uh, community pricing or sometimes called equity pricing. And so they wanna provide uh, the opportunity for folks that may not have the full resources to pay the full fare, an opportunity to get it at half the cost. Uh, so we're very excited about that, and especially for our community. Uh, Jamestown has uh, a lot of residents that live at or below the poverty line. And so giving them an opportunity to use a very low cost uh, uh, micromobility choice is great. Um, they also noted that they also they, they work with individuals that might be unbanked. For, so for your listeners, uh, you do need to have some type of credit or debit card attached to uh, your ride. That's in case you lose the scooter or something happens. You know, they also require an ID so that they know who you are that's riding their their uh, their device and that you're over the age of 18. Uh, but if you don't have a bank account, right, it could be very difficult <laughs> to, to provide a credit or a debit card. Uh, so they also allow the use of prepaid cards uh, that are that have a certain authorized amount. Uh, so they, they do work with individuals that might be unbanked, as they say, uh, don't have a specific bank account or credit card uh, linked. And so they'll they'll make sure they want to make sure that uh, ride that the that rides are accessible to everyone in the community. Mm-hmm. And moving on to another topic, because I don't want to run out of time. Uh, last week you had a kind of a, I wouldn't say end of winter meeting, but a, a kind of a, a status meeting and a what's next meeting with different organizations about who've been meeting. You've gotten together about homelessness. And kind of, and we heard a little bit about how Joy Fellowship and um, the Mental Health Association have been doing with their emergency shelter. So I guess, in a sense, what what's next for this group? Yeah, uh, there's a lot to be done. I think on homelessness, uh, as we noted, there's a there's a couple things that are really really important. Number one, uh, the warming shelters, the warming centers, the only two in Chautauqua County, have been um, incredibly successful in getting folks off the street. Uh, during the winter months, we've uh, we found that we've heard we heard from both of the shelters, uh, and they're all all concerned on what do we do next. Uh, we've heard that uh, from especially COI that provides emergency housing and temporary housing support services that there is a need for landlords uh, that are willing to get paid uh, to house individuals uh, that are necessary. There's been uh, there was a lot of discussion on just uh, coordination or care coordination. And that a lot of individuals, uh, we can get them an apartment, we can get them a place, but they need some type of social aspect, right? That's helping them, making sure they're getting to their appointments, uh, that they're continuing to maintain a property, that they're doing the things that they need to do to be a thriving citizen, thriving member of the community. So we had a lot of discussions on ways we can uh, try to work with our faith-based providers as well as other agencies to help uh, provide that, maybe be the liaison between uh, someone that's just getting a temporary housing and that landlord, right? Because we found that the county can't do that uh, due to HIPAA violations and other things. So many times landlords will call uh, county social services and they can't provide them support. Uh, So we've talked a lot about, are there ways that we can provide an additional support network to individuals to make sure that they're continuing to thrive once they are in a more stable housing environment? So a lot of work still to be done. We weren't going to solve all the problems in one meeting, uh, but we're excited to continue that conversation. Uh, and we're also trying to figure out other ways that we can continue the shelter work uh, after the winter months. Um, at this point, both shelters have, have uh, kind of tacitly agreed to uh, stay on uh, and be part of the county's plan for next year. Uh, but we're, we're also trying to figure out what do we do in the summer months? And uh, there is a need for housing, uh, which I'll be asking various landlords to see if they can uh, you know, uh, step up and help with this, uh, as well as a need for more uh, you know, coordination in terms of, the, in terms of the social aspect for folks that are coming off the street into more temporary housing. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that there's a difficulty with is that once we get out of the 
the winter months where we no longer have cold blue nights is that are there there seems to be some regulations where these warming shelters have to meet other guidelines in order to keep operating is that what's kind of like the trying to figure out right now in terms of the summer months? Yeah, that is that is part of the issue is that if you continue those uh, those shelters, uh, there's much different regulations that then uh, apply. Uh, so the warming uh, the warming centers uh, are under a what's called code blue and and that's a, a statewide program that provides emergency sheltering during the winter. Uh, that goes away once the once the winter time is done. And then the state's normal sheltering rules apply. So it's a very strict regulation on the use of shelters. So we're trying to figure out what that might look like and whether there's any opportunity to continue. Uh, we do know that COI is working on their women's shelter in the community. So we're very excited to see that that project is starting to move forward. Still a bit of a gap of funding needed, but they're working through that. Um, and then just a, an additional need for shelters across the city has been a, a really constant source of issue uh, for our community. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that update on that. Um, well, in a few minutes we have left, state budget should theoretically be done less than a month from this point. Uh, it's due April 1st for the, for the state legislature to vote on. And since we last talked in February, uh, you went to New York Conference of Mayors and they had uh, a lot of things that they were pushing on they weren't necessarily in full agreement with everything that was in the budget proposal so where do things stand that you know of with the state budget well i'll first start by asking have you placed any bets on whether they'll get it done in time the budget in time uh that's certainly always a question uh, obviously there is a uh, there's a date that they're supposed to be done with the budget but it almost never happens um, at this point the uh, executive budget there were amendments issued to those uh, we're still waiting on the final um, what they call one house bills. So both the assembly and the Senate pass their own uh, bills, and then they start the reconciliation process uh, to try to figure out what will be in the final budget for the state. Uh, there's there's a lot of questions in the air, and there's a question over support of uh, various, uh, various senators and assembly members on whether there'll be any type of bail reform, I guess reform of the bail reform, whether there'll be anything on uh, the housing compact, whether they'll move forward with any type of additional housing needs, uh, and uh, whether there'll be any changes to state aid uh, to municipalities, for roads, uh, for uh, community support, right? And we, we just don't know yet. Uh, most of the amendments were technical amendments that, that were received from the governor's office. So now it's just the process of everyone goes and lobbies uh, their, their senators and assembly members and uh, hopes to uh, have make some changes to the bill going forward. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that I, we've covered a lot? But is there anything else <laughs> that you you want to uh, share with us? You know, we're just we're very excited about uh, just uh, for your listeners coming up. Uh, March eighteenth is uh, Turn the River Green. Uh, we're Jamestown is still one of I think three communities in the United States that uh, still turns our river green with environmentally safe dye. I want to be very clear about that. A lot of people ask me that question, uh, but we're very excited. It'll be at 11 o'clock uh, down uh, near Brooklyn Square, uh, near where the Shadowcoin River is. Uh, we're always very excited. We have heard that the that there might be a sighting of a leprechaun, so maybe bring the kids down. Uh, but we're we're excited to be able to continue that tradition here in the city, uh, and we're just excited to see what spring brings. I'm I'm tired of the snow, Julia. <laughs> we haven't had that much. <laughs> That's true, but uh, certainly certainly ready for, for the spring to come. Great. Well, Mayor Sunquist, thank you so much for being with us this month. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into Community Matters this week. I'm Julia Cecil Hanley for WRFA.